Happy Easter, everyone. How you guys doing? This is such an honor and a privilege to be able to um, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ at the San Francisco Opera House. Um, I would like today to read a resurrection story to you, but uh, it's not the resurrection of Jesus, though he did preside over this resurrection. If you have a Bible, please turn to John chapter 11, verse uh, one. I'll read it to you guys, and then we'll pray. Now, a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, this illness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory, so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. And, when, and then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. And yet you want to go back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they will uh, see by the, the world's light. Yet when, it is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, I mean, if he sleeps, he'll get better, right? Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So, so they told him plainly, Lazarus is dead. And it's for your sake, I'm, and I'm glad I was not there, so, you, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had, been, had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them and the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But now I know, even now, that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside the Lord, uh, the teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. And Mary heard this. She got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Then Jesus saw her weeping. And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, Martha said, the sister of the dead man, by this time 
there is a bad odor, for he's been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So he took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Then he, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead men came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around, cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to gather in the middle of this city um, to remember your resurrection, to celebrate the fact that death has been beaten back. And, it's no, and it, it is an enemy, but Lord, it no longer has its teeth in it anymore. And I pray, God, as we approach the scriptures, that you would open our ears and open our eyes to see you, Lord. I know that I can only do so much. I, I can speak to people's ears and whatever, but only you can really open up a heart. And so we pray for the gift of faith to be given out at the San Francisco Opera House this morning. I ask for your help and your wisdom, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, I know this story is of the resurrection, is not the resurrection of Jesus. And I don't want you to feel like you're being cheated today. You're like, I went to Easter, and they didn't talk about the resurrection of Jesus. They talked about resurrection of this other guy. And I had to get to know two characters of the Bible today. It was like, but this narrative is actually about Jesus, not Lazarus. And I wish to show you today Jesus. And that's my hope. That's my goal. It's very simple. Um, Who Jesus is as the centerpiece of human history. The English writer H.G. Wells has said, I am a historian. I am not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. And our our narrative today surely substantiates that quote, or the quote substantiates this text. Either way, John has written this account to help us behold the power and the person of Jesus Christ. So first, I want to ask the question, how did Lazarus die? And why did Jesus take so long to get to him? Did you guys notice that when we're reading the text? How everyone was saying when they saw Jesus, the first thing they said was, Jesus, if you had been here, he would not have died. Martha said that. Mary said that. Even the mourners that went up to Jesus to the tomb, they said, could not this man who opened the eyes of a blind man? We talked about that last Sunday if you were with us. Could not this man who opened up the eyes of a blind man could, not, could have kept this, his friend from dying? Everyone was going, if you were here. And what about that delay? Did anyone notice that delay of Jesus? When you're reading, you're like, that was weird. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So Jesus loves them. Jesus was really close friends with this family. They were a well-to-do family. That's why they had all those mourners there. Jesus loved them. So he's like, he, he loved Martha and he loved sister, his sister uh, Mary and Lazarus. So when Jesus heard Lazarus was sick and is building up like, love, 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 love. And when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. You're like, I mean, I'm not a great pastor, but if I heard someone in the church who I loved was deeply ill and in their hospital and in ICU, I don't think I would say to the staff like, you guys, let's ride this one out. Let's like not go to the hospital for a couple days. Let's just see how they go. Let's see what happens. Like, it just seems like Jesus doesn't care here. Why does he delay? He's like, oh my gosh, I love them. John makes a, a huge point. Jesus loves Lazarus. And because he loves him, he waits. Now, why does he wait? Well, it does take a while for Lazarus 
from where Lazarus was sick to where Jesus was to get there. Um, some scholars believe it took about a day, a day and a half to get there. Some um, commentators and scholars also say that Lazarus died around the time the messengers would have reached Jesus. So when they would have left when Lazarus was sick to go deliver a message to Jesus, he, they would have di- he would have, might have died somewhere in there. So Jesus could not have gone back a day's journey and helped him anyways. But here's the deal. The text here is pretty honest. I have found the Bible to be very, a very honest book. It's a very honest text. Sometimes the timing of God and, and the timing of God's answers to our prayers don't come when we want them to come. We pray and we ask and they don't come. We're like, God, I need you to deliver, to deliver right now. And God delays. And why does God delay? If you've ever tried to pray, if you've ever had any sort of prayer life, you know this to be the case. American novelist James Baldwin, who's not a Baldwin brother, but anyway, um, wrote a book in 1963 called The Fire Next Time. In it, he writes this. He says, the Lord never seems to get there when you want him, but when he arrives, he's always right on time. This is the experience that we have here. I mean, if you've ever, if you've fallen, follow, followed God at all, or if you've begun to have a prayer life at all, you know that God's timing is not our timing. And so Jesus delays. And I don't know why he delays. No one really knows why he delays here. What we do know is that he does it for the glory to, so that people would believe in him. So they, so they understand his power, his authority that he has over death. But here's the deal. Lazarus still died. He still died. And this is very important to the story. Because everyone dies. I mean, this story is very, very sad. It's supposed to be sad. When Jesus does finally get to town, everyone is weeping. Everyone is questioning, using their faith to try to comfort themselves. Like Mary says, oh, I know that he will rise again on the last day. Like when we use those things, I know that he is in a better place. I know the suffering has ended. Like you say those things to yourself, I know that he will rise again in the last day. So Martha tells that to Jesus or Martha tells that to herself. We don't, we're not really quite sure if she's trying to convince herself or convince Jesus. I mean, this is a funeral, and this funeral has gone on for four days. This family is doing what is called sitting Shiva, a Jewish ritual of mourning a loved one, and it's tragic. Julian Barnes, who wrote a memoir called Nothing to be Frightened of, where he, in, his, in this memoir, he's wrestling with mortality as a secular person. He's wrestling with death as an atheist. He tries to write and find language to explain and deal with death in this memoir. Um, it's really like secularized meditations on death, you can say. He writes in his book that he was never, he's never been baptized. Uh, he was never sent to Sunday school. He has never been to a normal church service in his life. And his book opens like this. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I really, really appreciate his honesty as an atheist. Um, his brother, when his brother read the book, he's like, that's kind of soft. That's kind of weird. He's honest. And I love the honesty. And keep in mind, this book that he's written is a secularized meditation on death. So what is that aching? What is that longing that we have in the pit of our stomach when we know that things are not the way they're supposed to be? And we know it. We're faced to it, uh, face to face with it more times than not when we're close to death. When we either meditate on death Maybe we've even thought about our own death. We've thought about other people's death. Maybe we've been to a funeral in this last year that has completely destroyed us. It seems that when we are close to death, the problem gets more acute. 
that this is not the way it's supposed to be. No one stands over a tomb and says, this is the way it's supposed to be of a loved one. We all stand over the tomb and say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. So everyone around Lazarus's family is mourning. This is not the way it was supposed to be. I know a lot of people who come to faith in God at funerals. King Solomon said, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. It's like when you're face to face with death or when you're reflecting on death like Julian Barnes was doing, that we are very vulnerable to being struck with the reality that we miss God, even if we do not believe in God. We are struck with the reality that we miss something. We go to the house of mourning and we experience this aching or this longing or this loneliness that we have from God. Like we, we miss God. It's like we have some sort of haunted memory of when we had an unbroken relationship with God. Isn't that weird to think that people who do not believe in God still have this haunted memory of fellowship with God? And sometimes it might come out in a rare, exposed moment when you're writing your memoir. We have this, we have this like haunted feeling that things were right and there was no death. And that's why death is so frightening, so shocking. We're not used to it. John, the writer of this gospel that we're reading from today, does a masterful job of showing the power and the deity of Jesus. I mean, it's recommended. A lot of people say if you're a a young follower of Jesus or you want to get to know who Jesus is, read John. Because it shows Jesus in in his deity as being God in flesh. But what John also does masterfully, I believe, is that it shows his deep humanity. Because when Jesus is faced with death of his friend, when the death of his friend, it says this. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, so he's surrounded by Mary who's at his feet weeping, and he's surrounded by everyone else who's weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And it says, the the shortest, most, I think, most powerful verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. That's potent. Jesus wept. He wept. I mean, Jesus knew. He goes into this whole funeral scene knowing he's just about to raise someone from the dead. I mean, it's just so odd. He goes in and everyone's crying and everyone's mourning and he sits with people in their pain. He's present with their pain. He sits with Martha. He's like, Lord, if you would have been here, but I know I I still have faith in you. And so he meets Martha where she's at and he goes to Mary and Mary can't even get the guts or the faith mustered up to say, you know what? But I, believe, I, still, I still believe, she just says, Lord, if you would have been here, if you would have been here. And she's crying and she's mourning. And so Jesus is like, is in solidarity with her. She, he starts crying. It says that he's deeply troubled, which means he was angry. He was mad. I mean, I, I think he would, if I was Jesus, I would have rolled up like, like Oprah. Like everyone gets a new car, new car, new car. Like that sort of like, everybody, I'm here. Like new brother that was dead or raised alive. No, I'm going to do this. Like he didn't do that. He just comes in and he sits almost with them, sits Shiva with them, just mourns with them and cries with them and weeps with them. That's what he does. He's so present. He's so present. And why did he weep? Why was he so moved? This anguish of Jesus or this anger of Jesus, this weeping of Jesus comes from the agony that death brings all people. So Jesus walks up, and, he's, and his friend's dying, and he enters into, like, I mean, even if you can get this, this is God in flesh, like, becoming human. Like, this is, this is what it feels like. 
to lose someone. This is what it feels like to be separated. And this is what happens. People mourn and cry and weep and get angry and yell at God. Why, why didn't you do something? Why weren't you there? Why weren't you here? Where were you? All of these things. And then Jesus gets right into it and starts crying as well. Jesus is feeling firsthand the agony that death brings in his friend Lazarus. And so he's so present to the pain, even to us. We can, I mean, we can be guilty of kind of normalizing death. We can say, you know, that's just the way life is. It's a circle of life. It's not the way it's supposed to be, but it's just the way it is. But Jesus knows it's not true. Jesus sees death for what it really is. It's frustrating. It's maddening. Jesus is angry. Elsewhere in the Bible, uh, later on in a letter that we have we, that we call 1 Corinthians, it says that death is an enemy. The last enemy. We read it today in our call to worship. We're told by philosopher Luke Ferry, who wrote a recent book called A Brief History of Thought, of, that talks about all philosophy throughout history. And it says all, he says all philosophy throughout history, if you look at all philosophy from 2,000 plus years of uh, philosophical history, all of it is trying to deal with one thing, death. When you boil all philosophy down, it's death. And then at the end of his book, when he sums up 2,000 plus years of philosophy, he says, and as an agnostic, or he's an atheist, I don't know, I'll give him agnostic. I don't know if he's agnostic or atheist. But anyway, he's an agnostic or atheist philosopher, and he says that the best thing out there, the best philosophy out there to deal with death is Christianity. Christianity sees death as an enemy. It sees death as tragic and as a tragic separation from loved one. It sees death as the staining of everything. And so Jesus weeps because it's not the way it's supposed to be. We were created to live in perfect harmony with God and one another and with our environment and with ourselves for crying out loud. You were created to live in harmony even with yourselves. Our own bodies were not supposed to attack itself with things like cancer. Our minds were not supposed to attack itself with things like self-hatred or depression. And God's not to blame. God didn't create us to leave us. We left. We stopped believing. We wanted our life our own way. One scholar calls what happened in the first human rebellion against God the vandalism of shalom. Shalom is this Hebrew word and concept for peace and harmony and interwovenness and wholeness and holiness. When we were one with God and God was with us and we were one with like everything had harmony and was interwoven tightly to work together perfectly. And we vandalized it. We vandalized it. We still vandalize it today. With every word of gossip, we vandalize shalom. With every look of envy, we vandalize shalom. With every act of greed, we vandalize shalom. Jesus is weeping because the origin of death is sin, the vandalism of shalom. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. James is a little bit more creative with his imagery. He says this. He says in in James 1, "Um, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person, every single last one of you, is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. That imagery is powerful. James is saying, you and your temptation hook up, and you conceive, and then you have a little baby, and congratulations, you have sin. And you have sin, you nurture it, and it grows up and it kills you. That's what it says. And everyone knows this to be true. 
That's the imagery that, that, James is, that James is pointing out here. Paul says in Romans that the wage of sin is death. Jesus weeps here in solidarity with everyone involved because death was never the intention. Death was never the intention. Life was. True life was the intention. Life in unbroken fellowship and relationship with God. And remember what Jesus said to Martha when he came into town? He came into town and he said, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. I know that he will. She says, I know the doctrine. I know the doctrine at the end of all things, God will raise his body to life. Yes, I believe that. It's a great doctrinal statement. It's actually both the Jewish and Christian teaching. Still today, we believe that one day God will raise our our dead bodies that now have mortality and raise them to new life and give it immortality. We still believe that. But look what Jesus does. We say that around memorials. We say this around funerals. They've said it since, I mean, since the Jewish faith began. God will raise us up in the last day. But look what Jesus does. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Oh, I, I believe the doctrine, Lord. Jesus says, I am the resurrection life. The one who believes in me, even though they die, the one who believes in me will live even though they die, and the, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Today, we, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We gaze into an empty tomb and marvel that Christ has been risen from the dead, that he has conquered death and with it sin and the Satan. And that's what we celebrate today. See, many Christians get excited because on Easter we think we have a doctrine. We have a belief about life and death. We believe about how the things will end at the end of all time, that Christ will raise our bodies from the dead. And we file it away in things that we believe, and then we move on until next Easter. No, the point of Easter is not a doctrine. The point of Easter is a person. It's not to give us a belief in a thing, a statement, a creed, but it's to encounter a person. Martha says, oh, I believe that doctrine. And Jesus says, I am that doctrine. It's me. Like, that's not a thing that you attach to your belief system at the end of all things. I am here now. I am that doctrine in flesh. I am the resurrection and the life. You see, what Jesus was doing, he was diverting her from abstract belief into some, this concept that she has. And what, she do, what he does is he, he, he takes this abstract belief and what she kind of puts off in this like far off distance and he personalizes he personalizes her belief in him he says i want you to believe in me i am life i alone have life there is neither resurrection nor life outside of jesus there is neither resurrection nor life outside of jesus she's saying it's not, a, it's not a belief system it's me life isn't something that you kind of believe in or something i provide it's in me In me is life. I am the resurrection. I am the life. See, Jesus is not saying that he can provide resurrection and life, though that is definitely implicit here, but that he himself is the resurrection and the life. New life and real life are not just sourced in Jesus, but they are Jesus. In him, it says in Acts, we live and move and have our being. This means that we don't have to wait for death and resurrection to have true and lasting and eternal life. That we can know it now because we have it in Jesus. This is what Jesus was telling Martha. I am the resurrection and life. And then he says this. 
The one who believes in me will live even though they die. This means physical death. If you believe in Jesus, and even though you die, you will live. If you physically die, you will still live in Jesus. All death is, is a, is a, is a passing over to another side. Just a, the next part, the next stage in the journey. And then he says this, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. This is speaking of spiritual death. Physical death and spiritual death are both consequences for the, for the fall, for sin, for the vandalism of Shalom. Now, you might be thinking, well, won't Martha die still? I mean, she's going to die, yes, but her death, like the death of all who place their trust in the resurrection and the life of Jesus, will not be forever. One commentator has said, Jesus has made death for believers a conquered, superseded event of minimal duration. Jesus has made death for believers a conquered, superseded event of minimal duration. See, death will not have the last word. So when Jesus finally does get close to the tomb of Lazarus, his body, he asks, where did you lay him? And this is, he's asking this in all humility and all humanity. Where'd you, he doesn't know. Where'd you lay him? And it says that the mourners like grab him and say, Lord, come and see. And they take Jesus to where they believe final reality is, the grave. Like, okay, come see where we laid him, where reality stops and ceases. All reality ends at the grave. Do you remember how everyone said, Lord, if you were here, he would not have, he would not have died. If you had been here, he would not have, not have died. Couldn't the, the man who opened the eyes of the blind man done something while he was still alive? They treat Jesus like a really good doctor. And as any really good doctor, their practice ends at death. Jesus, they were saying to Jesus, you're a really good doctor, but you were not here, and now he's dead, and you, cannot, you can't do anything about it. Death is where your power must stop. So here is where his body lay, Lord, come and see. They did not say, Lord, come and conquer. They said, come and see. Death seems final. The end of something but something that can only be observed. We never see death as being alterable. Death is something that we observe. We go and we observe. We go to a wake. We go to a funeral. We observe death. You can't alter it. But Jesus gets to the tomb and asks them to roll away the stone. He's like, could you roll away the stone? And then the faith, I don't, I don't have a King James Bible anymore, but quick story. When I first started teaching junior high ministry, when I was a young person, um, I was a youth pastor, and I didn't know what Bible to get. I was really new. So I got a King James Bible. And I just, I didn't know there was like a, I was like, he's a king, so he's got to have a good Bible. So I just grabbed it. And I started teaching from it. And this became my favorite thing to teach from in junior high. Because it says here, when he said, roll away the stone, uh, uh, Martha says, but Lord, by this time he stinketh. And that was awesome junior high fodder (laughs) right there. He stinketh. That was like every sermon in it there. Um, he, it really says that. So it's like, Lord, by this time there's an odor. There's, he's been there for four days. And, and, and Jews, uh, uh, Jews at the time had this belief that the spirit of, of a dead person's body would hover around the body for three days wanting to re-enter it. It's the fourth day. Not only does he stink, his spirit's gone. He's dead, dead. Really dead. For real dead. You could do nothing here. And what Jesus says next is probably the most memorable personally, the most memorable passage of scripture that I've held on to in my entire Christian life. I didn't I didn't grow up in church. I came to know and follow Christ um, later on in my high school years. But this verse, the first time I read it, I clung to it 
for a very long time. Verse 40. When they didn't believe, like, why are we going to roll away the tomb? He's dead, dead. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Did I not tell you that if you believe? Notice the progression from belief to sight. We want it the other way. Let me see, and then I will believe. That's the definition changes, though, after that. If you see, it's not really a belief anymore. It goes from belief to sight. You believe, then you see. And this has marked my life ever since I was a young Christian. I don't always see it. I'm the kind of person, I'm, a kind of, I'm pessimistic. I like to say I'm a realist, but people say pessimistic. Um, I, I kind of tend to be a critic. And this verse means a lot to me. I hear the Spirit of God saying this verse to me all the time. Dave, if you would believe, you would see my glory. This is what he tells everyone there. If you, didn't I tell you if you believed? And so he goes up, and, they, and so they go, okay, we'll believe. And they roll back the stone uh, entrance of the tomb, and they roll it back. And then Jesus says in a loud voice, and I love how secular his words are. They're not like holy words, not like some incantation. He says, Lazarus, come out, come out of there. That's it. Just really, just secular, like come out, get out of the grave. And Lazarus, look at the, the text. He comes out like thriller or something. Like he just comes out like a mummy. He has stuff wrapped, even has stuff wrapped around his face. I don't even know how he can see. It's like bumping into the stone wall, just ah. And he just starts stumbling out of the tomb. I, many church fathers comment that Jesus' Jesus' authority, it was so powerful that if he didn't call Lazarus by name, tombs from all over the place would have emptied out. That is so good. He was like, come forth. I mean, Lazarus. Everyone else go back. Like, not time yet. Okay, here I go. Like, that's what they, they believe that that's the power of Jesus. He has to call by Lazarus right there, that one, come out. And Lazarus comes popping out. Death meets Christ and Christ conquers. Jesus comes face to face with death and he conquers. And we know this, this chapter is a foreshadowing. We look through it to see Jesus' own death and resurrection. But it's not just a foreshadowing. The raising of Lazarus becomes a prototype an active parable of the life-giving power of Jesus. This here, ladies and gentlemen, is what Jesus does. Jesus makes dead people alive. He makes people who are spiritually dead alive. He gives new life to those who, after they've died, they have life in him. Jesus does this. Christianity works precisely because death didn't. Christianity works because death didn't work. Jesus has not come to make bad people nice. Jesus has come to make dead people alive. So if you're like, okay, Christianity, it's like being better. No, not at all. It gets there eventually. It's about being nicer and giving more stuff. It's about you that were dead becoming alive. And once you're alive, you start seeing the world in vivid color. You start smelling real smells. You start hearing real sounds. You start seeing the world for what it really is. And then, yes, you respond accordingly. You become all those things, but that's, it's, not, it's about dead people becoming live people. We are dead in our sins, dead to the life of God, to the quality of life that is only found in Jesus. Jesus has won for us and offers us life in him. He has beat back death and sin, and Satan, and offers us eternal life. Life that starts now, not just when we die. And the only thing Lazarus brought to his own resurrection, 
The only thing he brought to his resurrection was a dead life. A dead corpse. That's it. So you might be here and you're like, okay, so I, I, I might be interested in following Jesus, but I have to like get some things arranged first. And I have to like clear this out and do this and do that and do this and arrange this. And then I, there are so many people like, I have to like clean my life up and then I'll offer it to God. Like, God, I, I kind of did some work, cleaned it up a bit. Here you go. It's like cleaning up a corpse. A dead person's a dead person. All you bring is your dead self. And then Jesus raises it to life. This is not just a cute story though it is a great story. But it's truth, and it's life to anyone who believes. That's the whole point that John is, is making here. That's the whole point of his entire book, is that you would believe in Jesus. Do you believe this? That was the question that he asked Martha after telling her that he was the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus does not want to give his two resurrection sentences and then leave them hanging out there like unplucked ripe fruit. He wants belief. He wants trust. He wants confidence in him. So let me ask you the question. Do you believe? And notice Martha's reply She doesn't say, Lord, I believe this. She says, yes, Lord, I believe you. I believe you are the Messiah. I believe you are the Son of God. She doesn't say, I believe in a doctrine. I believe in a thing, a system of, I believe in the person of Jesus. I cast my faith upon Jesus. I believe in you. A personal trust. This is what Jesus requires. This is what Jesus is after. And this is what the hope of the resurrection is all about. Because this story is a, is a foreshadowing, forward-pointing story, pointing toward the day when Jesus Christ would die and raise to new life, proving that he truly is the resurrection and the life. So the question today for us that we've been praying to this moment is, do you believe? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your grace upon us, God, that you would fill this opera house with people eager to hear, wanting or desiring to hear, or even just open to the fact of hearing what you are about. And I ask, God, that you would cause right now um, people to put their faith in you, Lord, that dead people would become alive people people who are, maybe it's a longing, um, a, a feeling of, of filth or dirtiness, maybe a feeling of loss or brokenness. I pray that, God, you would be today a resurrection and life power for us, to, for us who believe. And so, Lord, as we respond to you, Lord, I ask, God, that we would respond in ways that are pleasing to you, our hearts that are open to you, Hearts that are maybe even saying for the first time, I receive you, I trust in you, Jesus. Lord, cause faith to bud here. In Jesus' name, amen.